obviously last week we dove into Leviticus in the sense of introducing the book and hopefully whetting our appetite a little bit for what is coming up and kind of working through uh, what is a great book. And again, I'm going to keep on going back to this invitation to life with God because that is the premise of Leviticus. It is how in the world do sinful people live with a holy God that desires a relationship with them. And what is amazing about Leviticus is if you read it with a rebellious heart, if you read it with a heart of, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I don't want to, how to dare God give rules? How dare God tell us how to, to live for him and to live in his presence? Well, yes, that is reflective of a sinful heart and one that's not going to be responsive to this. But if you look at what God tells us as his mercy and grace, that he is a holy God who is actually condescending enough to, to us to tell us what we need to do. And that's what he's doing with the nation uh, of Israel. Uh, Carrie, I'm going to throw you under the bus for a second. I'm going to ask someone to read Leviticus 3 through 17, and you've been chosen for the night. I usually would do this ahead of time, but I figure I can pick on Carrie. No, you're reading chapter one. <laughs> And that's all. I've prepared nothing, and he's going to read chapter 3 through 17. It's chapter 1, verses 3 through 17. So whenever I get to that, if you don't mind getting the mic uh, and holding the mic, that way it goes in the recording. Otherwise, they'll hear nothing. That'll be coming up here, I would say, shortly, but um, in some point in time. We're going to read through the text when we get to it just to have a chance. It'll be, like I said, it'll be a little bit. You just have to turn the mic on, and then we'll go from there. I put here too often, though, as we dive into Leviticus, we have to have the mindset that this is instructive, that this is a background to our faith. This is going to help us understand the framework of what Christ did for us. And so if we don't understand Leviticus, and this is a truth that I think we've ignored maybe as, as the overall church, if we don't understand Leviticus, we don't correctly understand the implication of what Christ has done for us. We don't understand our faith uh, to the fullest extent or how we should. So we're diving in and we're going to be working through, um, I, I, I mentioned with the um, Bible Project map thing, if you have that, that kind of helps you see where we're going. It's not going to be my outline necessarily, but it is a sense of understanding where we're moving through. Because in all honesty, tonight we're going to talk about the burnt offering, which is listed first in Leviticus. And they have on the I'm sorry side, which it is on the atonement side, but it's also on the living life for Christ's side or for God. And so uh, we're going to be working through that burnt offering. Uh, I put down here in, from Leviticus 1 through 3, and that was my original intent, was to work through three offerings. And then as I was writing, I realized that's not going to happen. So I wasn't going to burden you with three. We're going to start off with the burnt offering. But the first three things that are listed, the first three offerings that are talked about in Leviticus are a soothing aroma to the Lord or a pleasing aroma to the Lord or a sweet savor to the Lord. And it's talking about what pleases God. And so we're looking at these as a group because scripture tells us this pleased God. And I put here too often the question we ask ourselves in our Christian walk is about God being okay with what we do. Have you ever walked through that process? God will be okay with this decision. God will be okay with this service. God will be okay with this plan. God is okay with my career choice. God is okay. And we are looking for not necessarily the thumbs up, but for the lack of resistance, so to speak. We, we approach living for God with this idea that my parents don't know about it, so it should be all right. 
this won't irritate my dad too much, and so I should be able to get away with it. That is oftentimes how we approach our life, live for God. What am I allowed to do is where we often fall. Too little thought is given to what pleases God, what he desires, what honors and aligns with his perspective. And by the way, I'm sure you could pick up on it. That is the only correct question to ask. If ever you're finding yourself asking or thinking, I think God will be fine with this. You automatically know you're thinking the wrong way about God. That you are looking for your kingdom and to get away with what you want. And you're putting a spiritual spin on it to make sure you feel okay with this. And I've seen this unfold even in my own heart and mind. How I approach things. How I will do certain things. And I'm making sure that God would be okay with it. Versus the question, is God pleased with it? And that kind of is driven from this idea of the offerings we're going to talk about, the first three, and it'll probably take us two weeks to get through all three of them, that this idea that what they offered was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now understand this, it's to the Lord that it was pleasing. It's not that the burning flesh was appeasing or pleasing to the people smelling it. It was pleasing to God and what it represents. So this evening, we journey into the book of Leviticus, and we're immediately in sacrifices. I mentioned this last week. There's not a lot of narrative in Leviticus, though it is part of a narrative story. It is real life. They are at Mount Sinai. They are listening to the Lord's instruction. Moses is being taught and he's teaching the people. But it is a lot of what God expects from Israel to be in his presence. There is a narrative portion, which is two of Aaron's sons being killed for not approaching God the right way, not listening, not obeying. And it talks about the seriousness of serving God. But we're going to look here as we get into Leviticus, you jump right into the sacrifices. And let's be honest, what are they? Burning animals and grain. Rituals that are associated with them. And these first three are that sweet savor unto the Lord or a pleasing aroma to the Lord. They pleased God, answering the question we're supposed to be asking. And they're also voluntary for the individual. So when you read Leviticus, you're going to read about the burnt offering. When it's in Leviticus, the emphasis is on the voluntary offering of an Israelite. However, it was also compulsory for the nation to do this. So morning and evening, the priests were offering a burnt offering that would burnt completely. It's hinted at in Leviticus 6 or 7 when it talks about the priest's interaction with these offerings. But the emphasis in Leviticus is on the people. And it's voluntary. So it's in addition to what is being done by the priest. So the book begins with that call unto Moses. And then an initial general look at sacrifices for the individual Israelites. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. I'm letting Carrie read the bulk of this later on. uh, And in a second, we'll get to that. But listen to what it starts with. And the Lord called unto Moses, and we talked about this, and spake unto him out of the tabernacle. And that lets you know that Moses is not in the tabernacle. Uh, He is out of it. We remember uh, Israel's sin and broken covenant. They're not to be in God's presence. And so Moses, as their representative, stands there. And God calls to him out of the tabernacle uh, of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, And of the flock. And I wanted to see 
1 and 2, that first offering that's offered or mentioned is a very general word for offering. And so as we embark on looking at the burnt offering, this verse here too is actually talking about all the offerings. So it's talking about in general, what is an offering encompass? And I, I felt it was very worthwhile to understand the first requirement of the sacrifice and that it comes from domesticated animals, uh, contrasted with something that was wild. Um, the word in Hebrew, and I'm going to butcher it, almost sounds like behemoth, but it, it, it's, uh, it's behemoth to an extent, uh, not completely connected to what you see in Job, but it's, it's a word that looks very similar, but it means domesticated animal. It means your animal. So you're not a Texan rounding up a maverick out in the, in the desert or whatever Texas is, flat, deadpan, nothingness. Anyone from Texas? I'm sorry in advance for insulting you, but um, I love Texas pride. I just don't know why they have it. So um, that's there. I'm a Virginian. I like what we have here. But all that to say, you're not going out and rounding up a wild animal. You are offering something that belongs to you, and there's a very real reason why. But I just want to throw out the question, why does God say that you offer something from your herd and not something you capture in the wild? And we're a wild west, right, you know, America, you know, go out, round up your herd and get your cattle, break those horses, you know, all that kind of mentality. Why is it something that you own? What are some reasons? It's personal. It's a sacrifice, right? Because what is wild game? It's what? It's free, <laughs> Right? And some would say, well, I had to go out and work to round it up. How many hunters here have to be forced to hunt? Have you met any of them? When it's not hunting season, they're at the gun shop and, and somehow or other convincing themselves it's okay to buy yet another one. And I, I'm all fine with that because I use all the same excuses to get hobby things too, right? And when they're hunting season, they'll take off work. I know people that take their vacation to go hunt to get up at six or four in the morning and sit in a tree stand. It's, but it's sport to them, right? It's fun. And so you've pegged exactly on why God wants it from the domesticated herd. The reality is wild came doesn't cost you, except time, and for many that's enjoyable time. Yet as Gordon Wenham accurately notes, sacrifice was at the heart of Old Testament worship, and an essential ingredient of sacrifice was that it had to be costly. When you see this animal sacrifice, it's very easy to read how many animals they had and say, big deal, they killed a lamb here and there. Big deal, if you're poor, you had some birds. Big deal, you killed a bull, which would have been the richest sacrifice. But we need to understand in the context of how they lived, what were they typically eating on a day-to-day -day basis? What did God send in Exodus? Manna, right? And they're not always eating meat. We, we eat meat whenever we want to, right? We're a fairly affluent society. I remember going to China years ago with my brother. And at that time, I still love soy sauce. I just can't eat it. So I have to do knockoff soy sauce. But at that time, I consumed an inordinate amount of soy sauce with anything that was Chinese or Japanese. In other words, I liked their food because I could drown it in soy sauce. So I'm in China and I'm sitting down. We're eating at a restaurant. We have someone who's taken us to see the Great Wall. And I say, do they have soy sauce here? I, I want soy sauce. And she says, you only eat soy sauce if you don't have meat. In China, when we don't have meat, we spice our rice with soy sauce. But when we have meat, 
you don't need the soy sauce. And I said, I don't think you understand Americans. We need soy sauce. You know, this is where I'm at. But it dawned on me that they ate a lot of rice without what? Meat, because meat's a luxury. And so they would flavor it with something other than that. They appreciated me a lot more than I did. And here's the reality. Worship is tied to sacrifice and sacrifice is tied to something that actually cost you. So as the book of Leviticus opens up, that book invites Israel to a life with God, the one and only God, the holy God. And the invitation requires things done his way. And we're immediately confronted with the idea of sacrifice and worship. We are confronted with the reality that worship takes sacrifice. Something precious is given to God. So as we start on this book, I'm going to start with the first kind of action step as we embark. Ask yourself a bit of a provoking question. Have we given or have we been giving to the Lord what only cost us nothing? The Israelite is not going to miss this. They're going to understand that this sacrifice is an act of worship and that the sacrifice costs something because they need to bring something of value. In most of the, the offerings, you could bring male or female. And the burnt offering and the uh, sin offering or reparation, not reparation, uh, the um, purification offering, you could bring only a male that was about blemish. It was the most valued animal. It had nothing wrong with it. The other ones, you brought something that had no blemish, male or female. But the idea is that it costs something. It costs that individual significantly. And though the smaller option was offered... You didn't come bait and switch God. You didn't say, I can afford a bull, but I'll bring a lamb. Or I can afford a lamb, I'll bring doves. Because they would walk into the priest, and we're going to walk through the process, and they would ask if it was acceptable. And in that society, the priest is going to know where you are on the economic scale. And if you're some rich guy bringing in turtle doves, he's going to say that's unacceptable. Why? Your heart's not round up. You're just checking the box. And so you're going to bring, and this is what I find fascinating, what is equally a sacrifice for you. It's not that the rich brought more and the poor brought less. It's that in God's economy of a sacrifice, they actually brought the same level of sacrifice, but sacrifice they needed to do. God was detailed about the sacrifice being equal, an equal cost for everyone, not necessarily that the level of the object was equally offered. As a believer, and God has blessed you in maybe a material way, don't you dare look at someone who has less than you and think you give more than them. You might be surprised that you give less than them in God's eyes because he's very consumed with the, with the sacrifice, the cost of what we bring. And so we have to be careful how quickly we give ourselves a passing grade. I put here, so have we been giving to the Lord what really cost us nothing or what we are willing to spare instead of what he asked from us? And that's a very personal question. I can't stand up here, point to Justin and say, hey, man, you're not giving enough based on what God's given you. Now, remember, we think immediately when I say give, what do you think of? Monetary. It's money, right? We always think money. But what if God's gifted him in a certain way and he's using his gifts to a certain ability but not the way God would want him to. We have no idea. We don't understand that. That's something he's going to talk to God about or Carrie or Tom or anybody. 
We have to ask ourselves, have we been giving what costs us nothing, or have we been giving maybe what we know we can get away with? Oh, the church can be blown away with how I use my gifts and talents and, and, and education and finances and you name it. Yet it's nowhere near what God would ask of us. And so as you start on Leviticus, you're confronted with the fact that we can be really quickly selfish in how we worship. The Israelite was not given that luxury, but instead God is framing this immediately to let them know that he wants to be worshipped his way and that worship is linked with sacrifice and sacrifice should cost us something. If you go all the way with David's life, remember he was going to buy the threshing floor of somebody and they said, don't worry, we'll give it to you. He says, I'm not going to give to the Lord what costs me what? Nothing. I will give what costs me. I will pay the price. Now we dive into more detailed descriptions of offerings and regulations in Leviticus I want you to keep in mind some questions. And I pulled this from a guy named Charles Erdman. It's a really old book, old enough that it stinks when I open it. So every time I read it, I'm like, smells musty. Um, good, good literature. If I could find this in a modern print, I would pitch the old one and get it. It's, it's that kind of musty smell. You know, people go, like, oh, it smells like an old book. It does. It's awful. So he wrote this, sidetracking there a little bit. As we walk through Leviticus, think about this. What did the exact provision of the ritual signify to the ancient Israelite? You want to think in context. If you understand reading scripture, you want to think in context. What did it mean to the original audience? Two, how is any specific type fulfilled by the person and work of Christ? And Christ is going to be the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, but you're going to understand to the extent that he fulfills it. I know in my own mind, before I was diving into Leviticus, uh, just reading through Leviticus and starting the study, I've been not overwhelmed, but I mean, just struck by how shallow my, my understanding of Christ's sacrifice was. Because we're going to see him fulfilling the burnt offering and that atonement and that dedication component. And he's going to be the purification. He's going to be the reparation. You're going to see him fulfill so many things. And we got to understand how that ties back to what God instructed the Israelites to do. Because God wasn't just erasing everything in history. He's not just keep on going behind him. He's not covering his trail, saying, well, I did that. Now I'm going to block it out. No, we're given all of Scripture for a reason, and we need it to understand. But we understand how it's fulfilled and how it will be fulfilled. And then what application of the principle involved can be made to the life of a Christian. What do we do with some of this information? How do, we, how do we understand, how is it instructive to us now even? Uh, so many people will grab a hold of Leviticus and say, yep, I got read Hebrews, it's done. I don't need to worry about Leviticus anymore. Now that you find so much explanation of Leviticus tucked in Hebrews that it opens our eyes to exactly what there was meant there, but to discount a book of the Bible with that kind of brush stroke is a very dangerous thing to do. What did they read in the New Testament? They're reading this. They understood his sacrifice based on Leviticus. So we're going to walk through that. I'm not necessarily going to every time break it down in those formats, but as you read this book, you're thinking this. You're wondering, what did it mean to the Israelite? What does it mean to me? How is maybe something's fulfilled or will be fulfilled moving forward? So we're looking at worship and sacrifice. We see how they're tied together and that sacrifice costs something significant. We move now to what is labeled as the most familiar, uh, most commentators use the word common offering. Now, the word common, if you read that in a commentary, doesn't mean of no value. 
It doesn't mean that it's lower than. As I mentioned to you, the burnt offering is going to be the most common offering, but it's one that is, as the purification offering, requires a male animal, the highest value for them of, with no blemish. And so it is ranked up there. Just as a side note, and I probably will have written this um, and then say it again, but this offering uh, is listed first because it is the most common uh, performed, by the way, every morning and evening corporately by the priest, as well as being offered by the individual Israelites. So in your mind, recognize the priest is burning an offering in the morning and in the evening, and is going to be burning an offering that any one of the Israelites would have brought. Um, if a purification offering, a sin offering, were being offered, it would take precedence and go before the burnt offering. So it would follow the purification offering. But what you're going to find is the purification offering comes at mandatory times, whereas the burnt offering with its voluntary offer and its daily, twice a day, this is what's being burnt on this altar all the time. Thus the word most common, or I like to say more frequent, it is something that that it's going to attach, and this is what we're going to drive to, is going to drive the ancient Israelite to understand the daily implications of their faith. And it's something that we need to apply uh, as well. It's going to always be performed um, in front of, and it highlights the all-encompassing nature of being in God's presence and the reality that worship was constant and that it should be constant. Remember, Worship is attached to sacrifice. If you're sacrificing morning and evening, what are they trying to say? What is the implication of that? Worship is to take place all day. Worship is a part of your life. I read one, one writer, it was actually, it's in premarital counseling book I have, but he says we're worshipers by identity. It's not something we do, it's who we are. And God made perfectly clear to the Israelites that they were worshipers. That's who they are. That's who we are. And so this is going to be performed by command. The priests are commanded to do this. And then voluntarily by the individual. Uh, It's not mandated to the individual. This would be something they would do of their own. So as we prepare to dive in, and even though all of you have read Leviticus in detail now, right? Everyone's taking, just just an idea, anyone read through it in one sitting? Do you try that? Anyone give it a shot? One person did. Good on you. See, there's, I, knew, I knew one lady would pull through, you know. Uh, all joking aside, uh, anyone get through the whole book this week by chance? Maybe not one sitting, but they read through the whole book. Just throwing the challenge out. I'll keep it in front of you, you know. I'm just impressed that, you know, Teresa did it. She, she took care of it. You get extra cake if it's there. It's going to repeat. It's going to, it's going to weave in there. So she's my, in other words, marketing ploy now to try to get Leviticus in. Either way, if, if you read it all in one sitting, uh, we're going to try as we go through this study. And some, some evenings it might be difficult as we get into some of the lifestyle components because there's a lot to read. But we're going to try to keep reading through it. And the reason why is that God's Word needs to be central to whatever we're teaching and learning. So Carrie, this is your chance. Uh, you need to read in the microphone. I even wrote this in my note. Someone to read Leviticus 1, 3 through 17 with a microphone. And so, you know, don't be shy. You have a pretty voice. At least that's what we're going to tell you while you read it, okay? So read it out for us there. Um, and uh, Leviticus 1, 3 through 17. If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it out of his, vo- his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle 
of the congregation before the Lord. Oh, yeah, it's on up there. Yeah, it is. And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priest and Aaron's son shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron and the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord, and the priest Aaron's son shall sprinkle his blood round about the, upon the altar. Sorry about that. I keep, uh, this is my study version and it keeps moving and he shall cut into into his pieces with his head and his fat and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is upon the fire which is upon the altar but he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar it is a burnt sacrifice an offering made by fire of sweet savor unto the lord and if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the lord be of fowls then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons and the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers, cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire, as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And you see it ends, and right in the middle, a sweet savor, a pleasing aroma, a soothing aroma to the Lord. That's going to be constantly repeated. So now I want to just kind of walk through briefly. Well, it won't be briefly. I'm, I don't want to be a liar. But we're going to walk through what does, this, what does this look like. And so what I have here is the court of the tabernacle, the entrance of the tent of meeting. And you're going to see it laid out there. And you're going to see where camp is. You're going to see where north is. And we're going to kind of walk through a little bit what it, what it looks like. And the reason I want to do this is, is that I want us to get a feel for what it's like because one of the things you're going to notice is that worship for them, and I always had this picture in my mind, you bring your lamb with its little leash on to the priest, you unhitch it, and you let them do what they do, right? And you're a, you're a bystander, right? You're an observer of this. And that is absolutely not what's taking place. Uh, not at all. So here's what takes place a bit with this. The worshiper brought the sacrifice into the outer court of the tent of meeting. So here is camp. They're coming in right about here. And so they're, they're right in front of this ash pit, which is important because they're going to burn a lot of stuff there. The laver is important because there's going to be cleaning there. And obviously the altar is important because there's a lot of things that are going to get burnt on that altar. Um, this is slightly above the ash pit and near the altar for burnt offerings. By the way, that altar was seven and a half feet square, seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet by four and a half feet tall. This is no small little box that you throw some animals on. This is not your grill. This is quite the, the imposing altar with 
horns on it, and blood is going to be sprinkled on the side of it. It was ornate. We've talked about that in Exodus. If you want more description of that, Exodus is where you want to go to get it. The worshiper would place their hand on the animal's head. If it's a bull, it's right here, and it's, it's, it's on the head of the animal. If it's sheep, head of the animal. Your goat, head of the animal. So you're coming in, and, and though they don't talk about conversation in Leviticus, there is a dialogue that goes on where this offering is acceptable. This is the worshiper saying, this is my substitute. My hand is on it. I'm bringing it in right here. And, and though, again, Leviticus is not saying, and the priest says this, and the worshiper says that. In the Psalms, you're going to see what would be likely a sung dialogue between them. At a minimum, there is some exchange that's going to take place because the offering is said to then be acceptable. I put, why the need to place the hand on the head of the animal? Why does the worshiper have to place its hand on the head? Yeah. It's a tangible connection. I, want you to, I really want you to see the physical side of bringing an offering. I'm not just with my lead taking somebody else's dog with me. It, it, and we're not... I'm not saying they're killing their pets. I'm just saying that there is a very tangible physical connect. There is an identification. There is a passing over. There is a, I put the words, weight of the substitution. You feel the heat off this animal. You feel the fur on its head. You, you recognize the weight of sin. It is a physical reminder of what is about to take place. So the worshiper now brings the animal to the north side of the altar. So as they come in, they're going to be on the north side of the altar here. And it's going to be their responsibility to kill the animal. The word that's used for killing in the Hebrew describes a very specific type of sacrificial slaughter that ensured the blood would drain out. You're going to read that the blood is not to be eaten with the meat. Why? Because the blood is where the life is. The blood is also not burnt on the altar. It is splashed on the sides of the altar. Why? Because blood signified the life. So blood was precious. Blood pointed toward the blood shed by our Savior on our behalf. It was crucial in the acceptability of the sacrifice. When Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood. Now, some people can go theologically on a rampage with that, but the idea is that blood signified the life that was in somebody. He gave his life completely. When the animals bled out, the meat is burned on the altar, the blood is drained out and sprinkled on the sides. So whether they ate it or in the offering, it's not burnt on the offering on the top, it's splashed on the sides. Very specific. Hebrews 9.22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. And you understand here that every sacrifice was slaughtered in a way that the blood would drain out of the animal. Even the birds were done so the blood can be drained out. They were diligent about the blood. This was no hack job. Throw it on the altar. Get it burned as quick as you can. It was very specific. What you're also going to notice is that the priest had a responsibility and the worshiper has a responsibility. So the Israelites were again reminded of the cost of sin, the cost of sacrifice, because they're participating. They, they have to tangibly, here is a live animal that I now kill in a sacrificial way. And so I see what death 
what sin causes. It, it, it's physical. It is the word visceral. It's, 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 it's impossible to walk away from. It is, it is you smell, and, and we all know this. Um, I was an accident-prone kid slash adult. That's why they take all the knives away. But I've cut myself more times than I can count, and you smell blood, right? That's why they say sharks smell blood in the water. If you've got yourself a substantial injury, if you've ever banged your head or bloodied your nose, it's something you smell, it's something you feel and understand. As you would bleed out an animal, there is a very physical component to this that's going to let you know of the cost. They're reminded, I want you to understand, of theology and the very realness of God's sacrifice depicted in the animal sacrifice. Look, even in our own secular culture, what do we say? We, we earn this by our own what? Blood, sweat, and tears. What do we say of our military? They shed blood to win. Our, we understand the implications of blood, even in non-religious connotations, we get it. So the priest offers the blood, and then the worshiper chopped up the sacrifice, the animal, while the priest began burning it. So as you are cutting up the animal. Now, you, not only did you have your hand on its head, not only did you kill it in the slaughter fashion, and I'm just using a knife motion. I, I don't know the, all the specifics. I'm not even a butcher. I'm not a hunter. So all those things I'm not capable of. But as you kill the animal in a specific way, the blood drains out. Now you are responsible for cutting up the animal so that it can then be burnt on the altar. And you notice it's going to go from head and the fat. Now, the fat was considered the best portion. <clears throat> In almost every instance, it's given to the Lord. Why do you give the best portion to the Lord? Every time you offer it, and the best part of an animal is its fat, and every time you're giving it to the Lord, it reminds you of what? What are you to give to the Lord? He's your best. And we look at many Christian principles that we have, and right here in this one offering, you're going to see them played out in front of their eyes. They're going to live out exactly what they're supposed to live out. They come as worshipers. They sacrifice as an act of worship. In that act of worship, the best goes to the Lord. The fat is offered up. All on a burnt offering, everything is burned up except for the skin, which is offered up to the Lord. Leviticus 7.8 will tell you that the priest ends up with the skin. Uh, you'll notice in some of the other offerings where the priest takes the majority of the portion, uh, it's never the worshiper giving to the priest a portion of their offering. It is always the worshiper giving to God everything and God giving to the priest a portion of his offering. And they made it, it made a very important distinction that God supported his priest, not the people. The people didn't say, here's your cut and this is the rest for God. It's all for God and God brings the portion for the priest. Here there is really no portion uh, for the priest at all. While the priest began burning the meat and the fat, the worshiper was involved in cleaning uh, the inwards and legs, verse 9. And it is a nice way of saying cleaning up the waste product, the excreta, likely done in the large laver um, close by. The priest nor the offering was to be tainted with what is dirty. They cleaned off what would represent what? Sin, pollution, right? None of us eats a steak 
piled up with fecal matter on top of it, right? That's, that's not, and if you do, please don't share that. That's information no one else needs to know about you, right? What do you do with shrimp, right? Do you ever have that little black string in the back? I mean, cut it out, make sure it's gone. My daughter was eating shrimp, and she asked Heather 50 times, did you get all the tails off? Did you get all the tails off? Like, Avery, the tails are off. Just chew it. We're all eating it. She's a little paranoid about germs. Um, we, we, don't, we don't eat that with it. What were they doing? They're cleaning it. Why did the worshiper have to clean it? Well, the priest is what? The priest represents a connection between the people and God, and so he is not tainted with the dirty that is there as the individual offers it up. Obviously, when the priests are offering up, someone had to clean it and someone had to offer it. But you notice that there was set guidelines. Why? Because what's holy should not be meddled with or mixed into the offering or mixed in with the person who's doing the burning there. Uh, the priest standing as that mediator is kept from pollution. Holiness, set-apartness, shut up to God. That is not going to allow them to clean that. The, the worshiper took care of it. And I want you to get this picture. You have now walked the animal in, put the hand on the animal, killed the animal, blood is drained. Poli- uh, priests collect the blood, that preciousness. It's spread on the altar. You are cutting it up. You are cleaning up what may have pollution on it. What does it mean natural in an animal? The priest is burning the fat, burning the head. The skin is all that's saved. Um, Now, when a poor person that didn't have the economics brought a small bird, the distribution of the tax was uh, was not feasible. You couldn't split up who carved up what. So the priest ended up doing most of the work. However, the worshiper removed what is called feathers in the King James, contents in others. Uh, The word in Hebrew is only used here, and it means to go out. Uh, It is linked to that fecal matter. So they remove that portion is, is the same as when they would clean the animal. And that's why they did it. They would split the bird open. I, I, that connects to the cutting up. And they were the ones that had to remove what would either be the crop of feathers, or I, I see it more as probably the area of the bird where the fecal matter would come out and it's cleaned up. The priest doesn't handle that. And so however you look at it, whether they plucked the bird or they removed a portion of the bird, it is connected to that cleaning up portion. And then the bird, they split the bird open, the bird is offered. But the blood was drained out before that. I want to pause for a moment and review something. Sacrifice and worship go hand in hand. Here is the regular Israelite, and they're involved intricately in the sacrifice. In other words, they're involved intricately in what? Worship. They are not watching the professional do worship. They are connected and worshiping together. They're coming together, fulfilling their roles. And so I wrote down, there's not, this is not a passive engagement. And maybe this is only me, but that's one of the first things that started coming out to me is the involvement of the Israelite. And they make very clear the worshiper in the worship that they're They're bringing there. Uh, And there's something important to be seen about worship here that bears weight today. Let me begin with a question, though. How involved or engaged are you during worship? And I put another question. Would you define it as active or passive? Now, I wrote this as well. Let me stop you from blaming the process of worship in the church on the church because that's where everyone kinds to go. 
I'm passive. I'm passive because it's Kenny's fault or Heather's fault or Theron's fault or Jerry's fault or Tom's fault or somebody in the church's fault or the system of the church, the methodology of the church. It's really easy to blame someone else. So let me go back to the question and we stop ourselves from blaming somebody else. How involved or engaged are you in worship? Are you active or are you passive? Because what we're talking about is your disposition, your approach, and your mindset. But if we say that all of Scripture is valuable, then we're learning something from the burnt offering, and actually going to see it in, in, in all the offerings. But you're seeing an engaged worshiper, someone who's involved in the process. It is not a bystander view. Do you come to worship actively? Here's some things I'll mention to you. Do you desire to sing praise? Do you desire to connect with the Scripture? Do you desire to be at the cross mentally. And I want you to recognize something about their worship. What could they not escape from? Death, blood, offering. I don't know about you. And again, I'm not a hunter or a butcher or a guy. I still remember hitting a turkey uh, coming home at the age of 17. We're not a family of hunters. Okay. We don't eat wild game. Uh, we eat vegetables we can grow. If you're Dutch, you're a vegetarian. We don't do war and all that kind of stuff. Very passive people. Um, ugly and passive is what I say. Uh, but either way, you cut, I hit a turkey. It dents the hood of the car. I come home. My dad says, did you get the turkey? And I'm like, what? I still remember my brother-in-law. So I have only, um, on, my, on my side of the family, I have one brother-in-law because I have one sister. And we viewed him as some kind of barbarian because he saw some deer hit on the road going to Pennsylvania and took a screwdriver, stabbed it, and then ate the meat. And all of us in our family like, just buy your meat at the store, man. Come on. You're not that hard up. But either way, that's what he did. So when I'm sent back, I'm thinking, what is wrong with my dad? This is ridiculous, you know. But I remember cutting, having to take care of that bird. I, have, I know nothing. Um, I had asked my sister-in-law, how do you take the guts out of a bird? And she told me how, and I said, no. So I got rubber gloves. I split that bird open. I washed it out with a garden hose. My mom cooked that six months later out of the freezer, and the dog wouldn't touch it. So um, <laughs> no one should. But you know what I remember about that? Because this is my first real experience with something dead. One, it's pretty gross going back and picking up a bird you hit at 60, maybe 70 or 80 miles an hour, depending how fast I was going. It dented the, herd per, uh, the hood pretty well. Um, and then I'm trying, I remember trying to chop its head off. I remember trying to pluck the, the feathers. My mom helped out with some ideas. And I remembered how gross I felt. You know, I put the gloves on because I was about to vomit just thinking about cutting and digging up inside of a bird. But you know what's interesting is it, it's involved. There's no escaping that it's all over you, that it's there, that, that, that there's no, you didn't wear uh, your neat suit and get no dust on your shoes idea. You, you were engaged in it. And so as we think about what they did uh, and, and they're bringing the sacrifice and you smell the burning flesh, it's not a good smell, right? To us, that's not what anyone here raise their hand and say, yeah, I hope to burn the steaks. That's a delicious smell, right? When you burn the steaks, you know you burnt something and you wasted it. And the fact is, there they are. But then we have to understand, Christ comes as the sacrifice. And so as we come to worship, if we're going to learn from Leviticus, then our worship must always be connected to the cross. It must come and tie us to the sacrifice. Because worship and sacrifice go hand in hand. 
So as we approach worship and we lose sight of the cross, then we're not applying what we can learn from Leviticus. And so I say, do we come to worship desiring to sing, desiring to connect with Scripture, and desiring to be brought to the cross mentally? Or are we passively coming to enjoy the songs? You can enjoy the songs. You can enjoy the singing. Are you appreciating the sermons but not actively connected? In other words, if you walk in and you're not ready to be an active participant in worship, my guess is you're not going to be. Even if you sing and even if you listen and don't fall asleep, you're still not going to be what this worshiper looked like who was involved in it. And so right out the gate, we're challenged, right, to say, how do we walk into worship? Now, I mentioned the burnt offering was the most common sacrifice. And so I'm just going to repeat this because I want us to remember who and how often offered daily by the priests, morning and night. That was corporate. Uh, And then you're going to find moving forward that this is something God commanded them to do. You'll read more about this in Numbers. Um, But also it's offered individually by the people. That was voluntarily. Uh, It doesn't take long to see that an offering that is offered two times per day by the priests, plus individually by the people, which is what the focus is here in Leviticus, now you know why it's considered the most common or frequent sacrifice. It's a minimum of two times a day. How many people came out of Egypt? Anyone remember some of the rough numbers that were thrown out when we were talking about that? Two million people. How many of those people are coming with a voluntary burnt offering offering. That's going to be a lot. I want you to recognize how much smoke, how much smell, how much sacrifice that this is going to permeate the camp, that this is going to drive them to worship morning and night when everyone else brings it. And what we understand, worship and sacrifice go hand in hand and they're intricately involved in what goes on. But you might have to ask this, what's the purpose of this sacrifice? How does this affect the life and thinking of an ancient Israelite? How does it teach us today? Uh, I'm not going to even pretend that I'm going to get everything listed here that could be listed. I'm just going to try to work through what I've gained in the last couple of weeks and specifically this week on what you can pull away. Uh, honestly, some of the best commentators, and I read about four or five of them, they don't all agree on this. And, and there's, a, there's a breath to the burnt offering that transcends uh, even Leviticus as you go into the New Testament. A lot of times I think most of the time it's not referencing offering, it's peace offering. However, with this being the most common offering, it's hard to, to understand the depth of this offering. It is kind of almost like a grounding or foundational offering. And I think that's why it's listed first in Leviticus. There's some sense of, of, of daily life. And that's what we're going to look at. For starters, uh, chapter one, verses four gives us the first clue with the first look. It says, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him. It'll be, it'll be appropriate. That's going to be communicated somehow to make atonement for him. Some commentators want to kind of race that. Some commentators want to make that the only thing. The reality is it's the first thing we know about the burnt offering, and it's kind of critical. It sets a foundation, and I think it sets a foundation um, that's a little different than the purification offering. The purification offering, when we get to that, is specifically for sin, and it's atoning for sin, so it's atonement as well. Here we have more of a general look at atonement, and what we realize is all humanity is sinful, And everyone needs atonement. 
So when you bring the burnt offering, in the Israelites' mind is the need for atonement. I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's kafir in Hebrew, which means to cover or to cancel. This offering bring, brought to the table is to cover or to cancel what? Sin. The, the word expands. Atonement is hard to define in a couple words. I'm going back to what you would just dictionary version of what that word was right there. When it says atonement, kafir or kafir, and it's to cover or to cancel, it would connect them, and this is what's really critical, to God's mindset. It connects us to God's perspective on humanity and on sin. As they placed the hand upon the animal, as they killed it, it will remind them of the payment of sin. It will remind them of this, that sin was real, deadly, and costly. Sin cannot be ignored when you are bringing your burnt offering that God says initial clue is for atonement, even though there's going to be other ones for atonement, that you are coming in and you are understanding something about God. You're, you're committing something. And, and what is underlying the burnt offering is this idea of dedication or consecration, which we'll get to in how frequently it's offered and then that it's consumed completely because it's unique in that. But you are coming in and you recognize that sin is deadly, costly, that it's real, and that's God's perspective on sin. Humanity's perspective on sin is what? Depends who you talk to. There's a, a popular song, and it was, it's interesting because it, sometimes I hear the title of it, and it says, I don't write sins, I, write, I don't write tragedies. Or something. In other words, there's no sin. They, 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 they've, they've erased sin in pop culture. It's a whole song about how sin doesn't exist. Can you imagine someone learns that song, they sing that song? What happens when you sing something? You remember it, right? One of my biggest tests that we have uh, good songs here is when I went down to the kid zone, and this happened a couple years ago, but seven girls were just playing down there like carpet ball and a few other things, and they were singing our song of the month just out of fun. And there's nothing better than listening to kids sing theology on their own in the basement, kid zone. So you're talking younger kids, and I'm thinking, well, if that doesn't put a stamp on, that's great. I went back and told Heather, I said, I can't believe I listened to him singing that. And she says, I hear him sing it. You know, she teaches down there. Bethany teaches down there. Wow, that's amazing. But here's the reality. What you sing, you remember, it's what you live out. Our culture says there's no sin. Some people say sin is only what you do wrong. I don't do any wrong, right? This world doesn't like the idea of sin. Uh, when you're offering the burnt offering, you have no doubt that there's sin. And I'm going to have to turn the dial up for fast. So here we go. I told you last week was special because I finished with 20 minutes left, but not this week. So the priest is going to be offering this. I want to move on. The frequency of the offering, it talks to the constant pressure of sin and the need for constant dedication. This is daily. This is not once in a while. Um. They needed a constant acknowledgement. They need to know and be reminded of the reality of our condition that required a sacrifice. It demonstrated God's desire constantly that his people are continuously consecrated to him. And last, but certainly not least, is the reality that the offering was completely consumed minus the skin. It speaks to total commitment. It reminded them and us of total dedication to God, everything given to him and for him. Uh, Samuel Schultz notes this, God was pleased with the individual Israelite who wanted to meet with him and express his devotion by making an offering of his best, most expensive animal. Never lose sight that these sacrifices cost them. 
The individual worshiper communicated their complete dedication to God and his atonement. They communicated personally their continuous dedication. The frequency, the mandated morning and night, the fact that it's voluntary, but the people are pouring in tells you something. And so I think from this purpose, we can make a few connections. And I think I was supposed to go to that slide. There you go, purpose and connections. As we examine our Savior's life and ultimate sacrifice, we cannot doubt his complete dedication. From the beginning, he told everyone, I'm here to do my Father's will. Uh, he was committed to do what God the Father had commanded him. He says that in John 12, 50. He followed that commitment through to the cross, providing with the atonement, just like the burnt offering pointed to, he gave himself completely. It was finished on the cross. He gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So he's fulfilling that burnt offering component. But let's look now at the worshiper's standpoint. So look at it from the perspective of the Israelite because that's where we're standing oftentimes. There's, there's a need for us to be consecrated, dedicated. We understand that, but what, what do we learn? Uh, we need to constantly acknowledge our need. What did the Israelite never outgrow? Burn offering. They are constantly bringing this offering, this voluntary offering uh, of atonement. Now there's, there's, Sins that are committed unintentionally, and there's a purification offering for it, and there's a reparation offering, and so that's very specific. What's unique about the burnt offering, though it's common or frequent, is this idea that you understood who you were, that you didn't start thinking more highly of yourself, that you constantly acknowledged your need before the Lord. And what I love about it is we don't outgrow our Savior. Two times a day corporately, Given voluntarily why, they understood the problem of sin, the separation sin caused. But they desired something that I think too many people in the church forget about. They understood the problem of sin, and they had a burning desire to be in God's presence. And so they obeyed God. And so if you look at a devout Israelite worshiper, the opportunity to bring a burnt offering that would then be a sweet savor to the Lord. And then you have to ask yourself, how do we do the same? I put as a question here, do we have the same driving desire? Do you have the desire to be in the presence of a holy God? When we get to the um, fellowship offering, that's a feast. It's the most joyful of offerings because you, you ate in the presence of God and you brought your family and maybe friends there to be in his presence. But being in the presence of God was a driving desire for the ancient Israelite worshiper. And I put here, we need to be completely dedicated to him. They gave the sacrifice completely, signifying that they were completely given to his service. We have the call today. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a what? Living sacrifice. Notice that word. Worship and sacrifice are linked. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Not your exceptional but your reasonable service and not be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And if you remember from Timothy, I mean, it's not Timothy, Peter, Peter connects to the idea of not being conformed, which he is connected to Leviticus. And if nothing else, you can't miss the constant links back to Leviticus that are woven throughout the New Testament. Uh, as we embark on the journey of Leviticus, uh, grasping the implications of a sacrificial system, Diving into now the most common or frequent one, the burnt offering, I think we can see why it's an invitation to life with God. Everything in their life was designed to point them to life and the life giver. 
when you are watching the death of an animal that you've put your hand on, that you've killed as your substitute, and you recognize what? Payment for sin. And you see what God has done to give you life. You recognize in a very physical, uh, olfactory, you smell it, you hear it. You smell the burning, you see the smoke, you see the blood splashed on there, you see all these parts that are taking place, and you recognize what sin cost, you recognize that you deserve death, and you see how God gives life. He's the life giver. So we're reminded a few things, and then we'll split up. Worship and sacrifice go together, and sacrifice costs something. Two, worship is active, and it's not passive. They are definitely active worshipers. And then worship involves a completely dedicated life. Worship is not something you do periodically, and the Israelites would understand that as they were grasping what is being set up as a sacrificial system, understand what God's uh, order is, what his rules are, what it means to be in his presence. They knew it required a completely dedicated life. You were set apart to God, and you can't escape that when the smoke is rising up Uh, from the tent of meeting, as people are bringing animal upon animal, as we estimate about thousands plus the other offerings that are there, you're never, it's not like, okay, maybe there's offering time. You're never losing sight of this. Um, So I just want us, as we dive in, understanding this idea of worship and sacrifice, uh, next week we're going to dive into chapter 2. If you read the word meat in your Bible, it means meal, which means cereal, grain. So just get that in mind. Don't be like, meat, meat. No, it's grain offering coming up uh, that's going to be tying in to the fellowship offering. And we're moving from the burnt offering, which I think goes over both categories of both this thank you and connection to God's opinion plus atonement. And you got the purification, reparation, which is significantly the sin and caring for it. These next two that fall under the sweet savor are going to be specifically that connected to the thank you, fellowship, worship idea, joy uh, that we have in Christ.